a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we revel in wrong think. Oh, come on. It's not nearly as subversive as it sounds. It's a matter of questioning narratives, stories that are being told to us by people in officialdom or doing the bidding of people in officialdom that may or may not square with reality. I don't know about you, but I feel dirty when I repeat things that I know are not true, but if I were to say them just so I could fit in and, you know, feel like I'm, I'm a part of the crowd, I'm running with the herd, yeah, that just doesn't work for me anymore. And if you are one of those individuals who you, you can't live within the lie, perfect. You have found the right place. Welcome. Come and find courage and camaraderie with others who likewise are owning their own worldview, learning to think more clearly and independently, and then using your influence as wisely as you possibly can, wherever you happen to be standing. I want to thank the sponsors for my show. Uh, this is a wonderful and growing list of sponsors, and I have a link to them in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm big on the peace of mind that food storage brings. And, uh, man, I'm telling you, packages from, you know, this will get you through a week to this could get you through a month to you want to do the whole shebang, take care of your family for a full year or more? lifesavingfood.com can do it. You just visit the website and they can explain everything and show you all the different options. Also, pure-light.com, hslammo.com. Last but not least, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. So where to begin today? Well, how about I ask a question? Oh, I just did. Anyway, what could be scarier than the coronavirus? Now, see, depending on who you ask, you know, for a lot of people, it'd be, I'd, I'd be like, well, um, government that recognizes no meaningful limits to its power. That, that scares me, or at least that, that alarms me, because functionally, that would make them no different than any other totalitarian regime that's ever existed. But believe it or not, there are a sizable number of people out there. There's still a minority, but it's a pretty sizable minority who would love to see lockdown measures become permanent. Ooh, I don't know. That I mean, look, the the virus is, is a real thing. The damage done, yep, it's it's been real to those who have, have contracted it and then, you know, had permanent injury or sometimes have died from it. And even though the greatest risk has been to people who were seventy years of age or older or eighty and older with different comorbidities, obesity being one of the big ones that apparently has has uh, you know caused problems for folks. I've seen the number of younger people taken by it as well. So it's, I'm not dismissing it as well. It's, you know, it's a hoax. It doesn't even really exist. I don't know that. It seems to me there's, there's sufficient evidence that, yep, there's, there's definitely a, a virus that has been causing some problems. But the virus has not been as destructive as the lockdown procedures and the lockdown mandates, the destruction of people's mental health, their livelihoods, and their freedoms. So if you have to do a cost-benefit analysis, I'd say, yeah, I'd take my chances with the virus. And I could do without the lockdowns. But 
The lockdown addicts, as uh, Fraser Myers puts it, they fear freedom more than they fear the virus. This is from Spiked Online. So this is from the UK, but does it disturb you to know? Polling shows a sizable minority want to make lockdown measures permanent. Here's what uh, Fraser Myers says. He says, some of us always suspected that there was more to lockdown than COVID-19. And he says, no, I don't mean that in a conspiratorial, scandemic, Bill Gates wanted done way. He says, there are social and political trends that made the government's job of imposing compulsory house arrest much easier than it might have been, say, 10, 20, or even 30 years ago. See, there's something clearly more to the clamor and at times the outright enthusiasm for social distancing. This degraded and reduced way of living that could reasonably be attributed to just fear of the virus alone. Now a shocking new poll by Ipsos Mori for The Economist seems to confirm this. It finds a substantial minority of Britons want to keep certain aspects of lockdown rules literally forever. Respondents were asked which measures they would keep permanently regardless of the risk posed by covid And he says the results are, frankly, terrifying. For instance, a third are happy for compulsory social distancing to become a permanent feature of theaters, pubs, and sports grounds. About a third also believe we should continue checking into pubs and restaurants with a contact tracing app. A quarter of respondents said they'd be happy for nightclubs and casinos just to be closed permanently. Not for COVID, just because. And one in five would support a compulsory... 10 p.m. curfew, confining people to the home unless they have a reasonable excuse, and that would last forever, irrespective of whether COVID-19 is under control in Britain or even globally. Does that surprise you to know that uh, that many people, at least of the ones polled, would be supportive of such policies? Now, here the author says, thankfully, these lockdown addicts don't represent the majority who just want restrictions to last as long as there is a viral threat. But he says it's nevertheless an alarmingly high proportion of people. And no doubt these views have been influenced by lockdown. The past 18 months have clearly normalized even the most severe curbs on liberty to the point where a return to normal can be framed as reckless and libertarian. It has shifted the Overton window considerably in terms of what limits can be imposed on freedom in a liberal democratic society, assuming that we still live in one of those. He says this devaluation of freedom goes hand in hand with the current to the broad current of misanthropy that long predates the arrival of COVID. In other words, our elites are always making it known they distrust ordinary people and their capacity for reason. They always assume the worst. If you don't put people on a tight leash wire, they'll apparently behave destructively. So if you let them choose what they want to eat, they'll go for burgers and chips. If you say, if you give them a say on the European Union, they'll vote for Brexit. And if you don't lock them down during a viral pandemic, they will run around licking strangers, behaving like COVIDians. Now, typically, these attitudes filter down to the rest of society. In other words, we often distrust each other these days. But one of the most striking findings in the polling is that it's younger people who are the most authoritarian. While most young people are no doubt gagging to get back into clubs, it's also the youth who are most keen on having them closed down permanently. 41% of those aged 16 to 24 want to shut down clubs and casinos, compared to just 17% of those between 55 and 75. Now, this is merely the most alarming expression of the Generation Snowflake phenomenon. 
He says there's reams of evidence showing that young people today are less likely to drink, take drugs, and have sex than their parents were at the same age. And now if the Ipsos Mori uh, polling is to be believed, there's a sizable cohort, cohort rather that not only wants to shun clubbing, but also wants to ban everyone else from clubbing. Now, he says the Generation Snowflake tag is unfair because these views didn't arise in a vacuum. Young people, as they rise through the education system, have been a captive audience for the elite's misanthropy. In schools, they're told that everything is dangerous, from their intimate relationships to the warming planet. They're told that hearing ideas they disagree with could lead to them being triggered or wounded. Hence the demand in universities for safe spaces. Freedom, they come to believe, amounts to little more than the freedom to harm yourself and others. Now, Fraser Myers concludes by saying those of us who believe in freedom have an awful lot of work to do if we're to reverse this tide of illiberalism. The fight for freedom doesn't end on 19 July. I don't know what the 19th of July is. Apparently, that's uh, that's uh, when maybe that's when the uh, the measures are supposed to lift in Britain. Either way, Fraser Meyer says this is just the beginning. And I'm not telling you this, or I'm not sharing this with you in the hopes that, boy, so you should look for the people around you who are likely lockdown addicts. Um, although I am going to suggest probably not a bad idea to check ourselves, right? Look at the person in the mirror and ask, are you a lockdown addict? Do you, does this give you a sense or of a need to control other people? And if the answer is no, then, uh, you know, good. But if the answer is, well, yeah, I do want to control other people. Might want to rethink that. (laughs) Maybe we should, maybe we should, uh, you know, rethink whether that's a legit exercise of our prerogative to go around uh, either stumping for government to put more control on people or trying to do it ourselves. I feel bad for the people named Karen, only because I know a couple of Karens who are really, truly wonderful people. They do not fit that, uh, let me see the manager haircut, you know, stereotype that unfortunately has become, you know, synonymous with the name Karen. But I'm also going to suggest every one of us has a Karen inside of us. We see people having kind of the kind of fun that we don't approve of, and we kind of resent that. I would like to stop them somehow. It's hard to uh, wrestle that little tyrant, you know, out of your out of your mind, and you know, put him in prison. But I think that's really the best place for him. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hopefully I haven't shared it too much, but uh, I I look back on uh, the move that my family and I undertook over the last couple of months. And frankly, if I were to sit down and put it all out on paper, I would have said this is a really bad decision. <laughs> this this doesn't make sense. Not from the standpoint of it's it's wonderful to be close to family. We are living in an area that is just beautiful. It all the beauty that I remember from when I lived there before it's still here. But the competition for housing, oh my word! Every person we have met who has uh, either come to visit us or has has just uh, you know hey it's great to have you guys back in town has asked the question how did you ever find a home. 
And it's because the real estate market is just nuts. Housing market is in such high demand. This is now I'm talking about Idaho, which is apparently a very sought out destination for a lot of people who are on the move. Utah is also this way. Actually, throughout the Intermountain West, you're just seeing a ton of people relocating. And it has uh, driven demand for houses extremely high. So that's not surprising. But what's what's interesting is when people go to buy a home, they will often find that, uh, you know, the moment that home goes on the market, boom, there are numerous offers that come forward. People are just waiting. And, and they'll sweeten the offer with, look, we're willing to pay 50000 over your asking price. And, and maybe you've seen this. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, look, um, I couldn't come up with an extra fifty grand to tack on. Wink, wink. Hey, you know, we'll make it worth your while. But something that uh, that I have seen and I thought was kind of interesting and in some ways kind of neat is sometimes interested buyers will include a little love letter with their author, with their offer, rather. And, th- you know, this makes sense, right? If someone's going to make an offer on a home, sometimes they will uh, give a letter that describes the family situation or circumstances, whatever that could be, or maybe it gives clues to, uh, you know... Uh, like I was saying to Brother Moses the other day, I mean, you know, they give some kind of religious indicator or something else. But the bottom line is they do these homeowner homeowner love letters, which is basically, I love this house so much, I'm trying to plead my case and humbly ask that you choose my offer over all the other ones that you've received. Okay, makes sense. I didn't realize, though, that in some places, this is being made illegal. I guess I shouldn't be terribly surprised. Oregon, I'm sorry, but your governor, Kate Brown, recently signed House Bill 2550, making Oregon the first state to make home buyer love letters illegal. Why would they do that? And, and I'm asking sincerely, what's, what's the harm? You're out there shopping for your dream home. You find it. You make an offer, and then to sweeten the deal, you write a homeowner love letter describing a little bit about yourself, appealing to, you know, the decision-maker's well, decision-making process. You want to. You want them to consider you. But apparently, uh, Paul Knighton, who's the CEO of More Realty, says realtors are being encouraged to stay clear of these love letters. They're saying, an example, when a letter comes in, if it describes the family situation or circumstances, or otherwise indicates or give a clue to religious or any other protected class. There's always the risk that a seller could be accused of making a decision based upon inappropriate factors. According to whom? Who gets to make the decision? Well, that's inappropriate. Now, there's an article here. This is from Kiss FM out of Boise saying, we all know how competitive this housing market is. So what are you supposed to do if you can't pour your heart out and get the seller to sympathize with you? And according to Paul Knighton, well, you really have to put your best foot forward, make it as clean an offer as possible. But the truth is, it's an incredibly strong seller's market. There's 0.7 months of inventory on the market. The more months of inventory, the closer you get to a buyer's market. But right now, it's such a strong seller's market that all the buyers can do is work hard and put their best foot forward in the offer. Now, really, to, to make it illegal for someone to to explain their situation. 
I don't know. This to me sounds, and, and this is just my interpretation, but it sounds to me like someone is trying to make sure that, you know, nobody makes what would what could be considered a politically incorrect decision. Well, you know, I was going to rent to that, uh, you know, new group of rap artists that are just, you know, getting started. But instead, I think uh, maybe I'll rent to this uh, little family that seems to have more stability and less parties. Someone, I'm sure, would look at that and say, oh, well, that's purely a racial decision as opposed to, you know, someone trying to make a decision of, you know, I would like to have somebody in here who actually cares for the property. That's just talking rental. Let's, you know, talk about purchase. Are we worried that people are going to only, you know, sell to those who have, you know, the right skin color? Because, again, government doesn't need to be a part of that decision. And I don't know where the assumption would come from that, well, if we didn't do this, Brian, people would only sell their homes to white people or others who have privilege. I say that's a decision that's best left with the seller. Government needs needs to be no part of this. The reason why is, is just very simply, government exists to protect our God-given rights, our natural rights. And in order for government to justify stepping in to correct a wrong, a wrong has to have taken place. And you may disagree with the decision of a particular property seller. You know, they're going to sell their home. Well, we didn't choose your family. Instead, we chose this other family. The reason why doesn't matter. No, it really doesn't matter. Because it's their home. It's their property. They are the ones selling. They need to be the ones to make the decision. And the same thing should apply to you. You don't need to be forced to do business with somebody that you don't really want to just because, well, that's the equitable thing to do. I don't know. I've heard some pretty intense big government schemes come out of Oregon in the last few years. But really, to make it illegal to to send a love letter along with your author? I don't know. It just seems like it adds one more layer of uh, unnecessary bureaucracy and government involvement to what can already be kind of a complicated process and not necessarily an easy one. I know for a fact that the day that my, my family and I were renting right now because, you know, this market, I, I just I can't in good conscience try to buy something at the top of the market. It's ridiculous. You know, we'd be paying a quarter million dollars on a single wide trailer. It's just, it's ridiculous. But when it came time to rent, which by the way, rentals are almost more difficult to find than homes at this point in Southern Idaho. This rental came on the market. We were one of, I think, 50 people who inquired about it within the first 24 hours. And I don't know what it was that uh, that caused our, our landlord to say, yep, I think you guys are the ones that I want to live there, but I'm really grateful for it. And if, if you know, if you want to convince me, it was just your privilege, Brian. You and your white privilege. <laughs> I don't know, because I had never met, I never met the landlord in person until after we had already secured, you know, the lease. But let people make their decisions. I know that uh, you know there there are finite resources in terms of housing to go around right now. People are feeling that pinch everywhere in the terms of higher prices, in terms of higher rents, lower inventory. But let people make those decisions. Their behavior is peaceable. 
yeah, people are going to be disappointed. Sometimes people won't get, you know, what what they wanted. Um, That's life. But let's not clamor for government to get involved. Please. It just, it's not a good idea. By the way, if you are one of the people involved in uh, looking for a home, I would strongly recommend get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Um, You will find that they, especially if you are moving to the state of Utah, they can help you get the loan you need quickly and efficiently. They're an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Call the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage at 435-703-4522 or stop in and see them at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't visited the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, there's a reason I want you to go there. And it's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily as self-serving as it sounds. Go check out my website, dude. It's more a matter of if you find any of the, the topics or guests that I have joined me, if you find them interesting and you'd like to, to know a little bit more, the show notes contain links, which you can then follow and you can research at your leisure. The whole idea here being that if there's something more that you want to know about a subject, you need to become informed. You need to be the one who becomes the expert. And we've been taught since we were kids, well, now only experts uh, can tell you whether or not that's, that's the right thing to think or not. Baloney. If it's something that matters enough to you, you will do the work to understand what's going on. This is a, this is a method that I've been using now for some years, and I wouldn't call myself an expert on a lot of, in, a lot of uh, different topics, but I also don't rely on mass media to tell me what to think about things. I've turned off the media to the, to the extent that if it's a type of media that brings anger or if it brings fear to the table when it's reporting on something, I really am not interested. I don't want to know what they're saying. Now, if it's something that matters to me, if it's something that's closer to home, I'll dig in. I'll compare different sources, but I'm not going to just take somebody else's word for it. I'm not going to sit there like a baby bird, you know, spoon feed me. Please regurgitate it right into my mouth so I can can know what I'm supposed to think and what I'm supposed to say about this. My apologies if you were eating. That's probably a pretty pretty bad image in your mind. Nonetheless, let's talk for a moment about uh, the wildfire season. It's underway here in the American West, and I'm telling you, it is just hazy. We've got massive smoke from a Northern California wildfire that is uh, just blanketing. Utah, Idaho, other western states are just getting, well, nasty, nasty smoke. And yet, it's not looking good, you know, for the wildfire season. But it's a, it's a good metaphor for um, cultural fire lines that are also being drawn. And, you know, here's some good news for you. These fire lines that are being drawn culturally now are being drawn in response to wokeism. Let me put this another way. Wokeism is running its course. It's, it's burning up all the fuel that it had to get itself going, and it's running out. 
And I found this excellent essay from Karen Kwiatkowski, Kwiatkowski rather, on lourockwell.com. She says, progressives in many ways, Sean Penn and Conan O'Brien, now blast totalitarian wokeism. She points out how progressive tumescence at the turn of the 20th century resulted in the 18th Amendment prohibiting the sale of alcohol nationwide for nearly 15 years. It's doubtful that progressive Marxists could today get a ratified amendment for any aspect of their value system. Progressivism and modern Marxism are not linked to any kind of broad-based, widely shared philosophy. Now, Karen Kwiatkowski says the negative effects of alcohol consumption were visible enough to most people as a gateway to all kinds of sins. Now, this was an era a hundred years before that of synthetic drugs and the Internet, both of which serve similar functions. She says the real history illustrates that prohibition, its repeal, as with modern pharma and the Internet, all served the perennial interest of the reigning state rather than the culture of the day. So the philosophies and fears that supported prohibition beyond state interests were widely shared across the country at the time. But you can't say the same for wokeism. Wokesters work in, they cluster in ivory towers and hide behind a myriad of keyboards seen mostly by their friends and allies. And to be fair, they're also blasted daily into homes and businesses via the government-funded ad council and U.S. government-influenced Hollywood streaming services. Now, she says, when a fire is burning, as it spreads, it either gains fuel or runs out of fuel. Fire breaks, whether naturally occurring or man-made, shape that fire. Containment is natural and predictable. Well, fire lines are emerging. A meme poking fun at the iconic AOC says capitalism won't work because people are too selfish. But Marxism will? Of course, it was never Marxism or communism that worked at all. It was only the state totalitarianism that worked. Until the state burned itself out as it destroyed the last of its remaining resources, human and natural, spiritual and economic. Karen Kwiatkowski says, Wokeism requires centralized control and political totalitarianism. It's a sociopolitical crusade to save souls, albeit without a defined heaven and hell. And the articulators of the woke vision are the elites and globalists. Yet the perceived mass beneficiaries of the woke vision are a set of inchoate and unhappy people who feel like they're not where they should be and it isn't their fault who translate their fear into their own future onto the larger vehicle of the world's future. And as with old-time Marxism, a good amount of jealousy and a false sense that we're not getting what we deserve is woven into the cloth. But the cloth holding the Marxist elites together with that unhappy mob was always threadbare. So as Sean Penn notes, wokeism shrinks opportunity. He notes that as a straight male, he would never have been allowed to play a gay character as he did in Milk. And then Conan O'Brien chimes in on a well-known problem for wokeism, one noted over the last several years, no one gets to laugh anymore. College campuses used to be approving grounds for comedy. Now nothing is funny on a college campus. And there's a reason military colleges are a tiny subset of the university system in the U.S. Most people want to attend college for a kind of curated exploration of the new, different, edgy, and above all, fun. All colleges today seem to be aspiring military schools, complete with intellectual uniforms and 6 a.m. room inspections. Certainly no one wishes to pay or borrow tens of thousands of dollars 
for the kind of censorious, lock-stepping, unhappy, fearful, and constrained experience college campuses offer today. If young people want to be nagged, monitored, criticized, or frowned out wherever they stay, or whenever they stray, rather, from the culture of family and neighborhood, well, they could just stay home for a lot less money, maybe even get a job and make people make everyone happy. Karen Kwiatkowski says the woke fire is running out of fuel as it shrinks professional opportunities, market opportunities, educational opportunities, and disallows having fun. It's starting to burn those it ostensibly wished to aid, and she gives three solid examples, links to those examples. She says a natural fire line is being created as the fire of wokeism runs out of fuel. Certainly the late-to-the-game response woke to wokeism is denying new fuel for that fire across the country. As people wise up, tuning into and opposing local government woke trends and tuning out the elite messaging. Fire lays waste and drastically changes landscapes. As with normal forest or grassland fires, there's a benefit in fertilization and in some cases, refreshed germination. Does this refreshing and recovery work philosophically as it does biologically? Karen Kwiatkowski says it can. With the impact of actual human beings seeking and finding opportunity to live and thrive and a little good weather. Follow up a big fire with a flood, a drought or earthquake and recovery is going to slow down. Just as Marxism was a tool for government bureaucrats to acquire and control the means of production. So modern Marxism, wokeism and its devastating impact on free speech and action has been a handy tool for U.S. politicians and the state to do the same. So the fire burned out, or burned itself out, but the heat created a large population of nervous, tiptoeing, behind-closed-door people who may disagree with wokeism, but prefer not to have their lives and economies destroyed by publicly saying so. Now, if we can judge them by their fruits, we're not judging university professors with their narrow ideologies and elite superiority. We're judging the state, which has been the sole beneficiary of the woke movement. Mainstream universities and increasingly public schools are no longer places of opportunity for their staffs or their students. The educational elites were tender. Media elites, regardless of their initial enthusiasm for wokeness, can no longer practice their trade or craft for fear of cancellation, blacklisting, shadow banning, or loss of social media platforms. TV producers, actors, talking heads, famous radio hosts, all tender. She says, if the state is interested in equality of outcomes, and the U.S. state is, critics of the state's noble motives will not be tolerated. She says, I always come back to Harrison Bergeron, Kurt Vonnegut's powerful novella about equality and the ravenous interest of the state in controlling outcomes, which is to say, controlling every individual cradle to grave rather than guaranteeing opportunities. Modern technology lends itself to this not-so-secret fetish of the state, and the state is all in. And she says, we can applaud the beginning of the end of the woke movement, but its mother and father, the fundamental fear of impoverishment by the masses and the anti-liberty sophistry of the elites are alive and well within the centralized state. So if the U.S. goes totalitarian, and by the way, door-to-door injections sound like a good start, then she says the only thing left to burn will be the currency and the corpses. Okay, that's kind of a dark finish, but (laughs) she still makes a great point. And let's hope that those fire lines are taking hold to slow down the wokeism.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I trust that uh, you find your wrong think uh, helpful today. Well, I've got some more to serve up here. A couple of quick stories to share. Um, Here we are 20 years later, after September 11th, and finally, after 20 years, the mission in Afghanistan, the occupation of Afghanistan, is drawing to a close. And it's time to start asking some tough questions, which some have been asking all along. But one of the questions that I know is on a lot of people's minds is, is Afghanistan a failure? Well, Pat Buchanan has, I think, a pretty reasonable take on that subject. He says, as in Vietnam from 1965 to 1973, the year our prisoners of war came home, America did not lose a major battle in Afghanistan, yet we did not win the war. South Vietnam was lost, and contrary to the message awaiting President George W. Bush when he landed on the carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, which was flaunting the banner, Mission Accomplished, America did not accomplish its mission. In fact, Joe Biden said as much Thursday when he responded to a reporter's question. The mission has not failed yet. As the 20th anniversary of 9-11 impends, and with it our final exit from the Afghan war, the Taliban are overrunning districts at will, and Afghan troops are avoiding battle in what many see as a lost cause. Monday, a thousand Afghan soldiers fled into Tajikistan rather than face advancing Taliban forces. So Pat Buchanan asks, why did we not succeed, and what does our failure there portend? Now, I'm going to warn you right now, you may disagree with his take, but this is a take worth considering, if nothing else, just for that broader perspective. Buchanan says, we failed first because our initial mission, once accomplished, was altered and enlarged to where it became unattainable. We went into Afghanistan in 2001 to deliver retribution to the al-Qaeda terrorists of Osama bin Laden, who perpetrated the 9-11 massacre, and to overthrow the Taliban regime that had provided them sanctuary. This we could and did do. We succeeded. That mission was indeed accomplished by May of 2003 when Bush landed on the Lincoln, as Biden said earlier. Quote, we went for two reasons. One, to bring Osama bin Laden to the gates of hell. The second reason was to diminish al-Qaeda's capacity to deal with more attacks on the United States from that territory. We accomplished both of those objectives, period. And end quote. But Buchanan says by June of 2003, Bush and his neocon advisors had expanded their horizons. A global crusade for democracy was now the great new mission. We were going to remake the country. We were going to build a new nation along western lines out of a fundamentalist Muslim country in Central Asia with a long and proud history of fighting and expelling foreign invaders. Now some knew this. And said so. For in the eight years of the Reagan era, with our military aid funneled through Pakistan, Afghan Mujahideen had driven out the mighty Soviet Union that had invaded in 1979. By 2003, Buchanan says, we moved on to Iraq where we stormed in and ousted Saddam Hussein. Brutal dictator though he was, Saddam had not attacked us and did not want war with us. Had offered to bring inspectors in to roam around his country to prove he did not have weapons of mass destruction we said he was planning to use against us. 
We were also going to remake Iraq into a model democracy, this one in the heart of the Arab world. What was clear in a few years was that the U.S. military could knock over hostile regimes and rout their regular armed forces, but we could not eradicate a resistance that had time on its side, plus tradition, tribalism, nationalism, and an abiding faith that martyrdom and paradise awaited those who died in the cause. As Napoleon said, in war, the moral is to the physical as ten to one. And the Taliban were willing to fight as long as necessary to expel us and topple the regime we had helped impose in their place. But we were growing increasingly reluctant to invest the blood and treasure for as long as necessary to impose our will upon what is, after all, their country, not ours. Truth be told, he says, Afghanistan was never of vital interest of the United States but has always been the most priceless possession of the Afghan people. But how the Pashtun, Tajik, Uzbek, and Hazara of Afghanistan rule themselves 8,000 miles away is not our business. There was never a vital U.S. interest in Afghanistan worth a war of the cost in blood, treasure, and time that we've just fought. Because any collapse of the Afghan government would occur on Biden's watch and be traceable to his April decision for a pullout of U.S. forces By the 20th anniversary of 9-11, what happens there this summer and fall will now become his to explain and defend. Pat Buchanan says, for certain, we're going to read and hear of more defeats for the Afghan forces we trained. Of the surrender of districts and provincial capitals, of atrocities against those who sided with us, and of horrors against those who embraced our Western values. Many who cast their lot with us are going to pay with their lives, as will their families. And the enemies of the United States are likely to be energized by what they perceive, not wrongly, as a strategic defeat of the USA. And Pat Buchanan says we did it to ourselves. Hubris was our failing, as it often is, of great powers. The mindset exhibited by Secretary of State Madeleine Albright when she declared, If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall. We see further into the future. So this wasn't to make you feel less patriotic. You know, I'm, I'm sharing this with the understanding that the reality has finally set in 20 years later. And, and whatever started out as well, we're going to have retribution, you know, for, for 9-11 became an occupation. And you don't win an occupation. You just don't. The only thing you can do is you can uh, decide when it's time to come home, which is what we did. And for those who, who died or have been permanently maimed or injured in you know pursuit of, of whatever it was that uh, the U.S. government was trying to accomplish in Afghanistan, every one of those deaths or every one of those injuries is tragic. But to my thinking, that tragedy is compounded by the fact that it's unnecessary. I don't say that to you know, spit on their, their uh, contribution or their, their sacrifice. I say that in the hopes that we will look to the decision makers and the policy makers who sent them there and be a little more discriminating in terms of what we're willing to tolerate from them. I know, we, we don't seem to have a whole lot of say in what happens with, uh, with foreign policy. But at the very least, we can get it right in our heads when it's being done to defend, you know, Americans or to defend, you know, America's interest or protect our God-given rights as opposed to, no, this is just politics by other means. 
All right. There's a link to the article in the show notes. I would strongly recommend take a look at it. You'll find them at the com. Quick note here. I, I will ask you, check this out. There's, there's a link in the show notes for this article about a pregnant woman forced to wreck by an impatient Arkansas state trooper when she didn't pull over quickly enough. Now, she survived the rollover with minimal injuries. The trooper, interestingly enough, has faced absolutely no consequences for his actions. It's been over a year. And uh, there's a great article by Olivia Rondo, which was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, and explains how officers who violate the rights of citizens are undermining the reason for which government exists. And when you see the, the video of this woman being pulled over, she has her hazard lights on. She slows down. She was looking for a place to pull over, but was not in what she thought was a good place. So she was looking for an exit. And uh, the, the state trooper, Arkansas state trooper Rodney Dunn, gave her the old pit maneuver, causing her vehicle to flip over. And you hear him asking her as, as, as he approaches the car sitting on its top, why didn't you stop? And she's in obvious distress as she cries out, because I didn't feel like it was safe. Well, this is where you end up. And she's, you know, there's this pregnant woman struggling to get out of her overturned car. I thought it would be safe to wait till the exit. No, ma'am, you pull over when law enforcement stops you. I'm sorry, but that seems to me like an escalation to deadly force. You don't know how a crash is going to turn out. And typically when police use a pit maneuver to stop someone who's fleeing and endangering lives, they do it because it's more risky to let this person run than it is to, you know, end the chase. And sometimes people do die when their car is is forced off the road. But this practice of qualified immunity, you know, I I mean, look, my, my judgment call is I don't think this trooper was justified in the least. There was nothing that made it look like she was fleeing him. She just took a few seconds longer than he would have liked to pull over. And that was enough to, to go into a berserker mode and, you know, flip her car. You know, I'm not, I'm not out for the pound of flesh here, but I think that uh, maybe that kind of behavior should be discouraged. Unfortunately, under qualified immunity, this trooper hasn't missed a single paycheck, hasn't missed a day of work. Doesn't sound like there's much accountability. How easy is it to trust a system? that can abuse you with that kind of impunity. I'm just saying, that public trust has got to come in at some point, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show.